Hello and welcome to another episode of I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. On today's podcast, we have Chris Francisque. Chris is an actor both in film and on stage. He's the recent recipient of the Jesse Award, which is one of the highest awards you can win in Canada for stage acting. Uh, he's also an activist. He's uh, very involved in a lot of what's going on right now, and he's uh, uh, quite the commentator on. He's got some amazing views, uh, which he shares here, and I really appreciate his, uh, his candidness or his candid behavior. I don't know how to say that properly. But in speaking with me, uh, it takes a lot of courage because he doesn't know where I'm coming from. So I really do appreciate that. I know this podcast is a little bit longer. It's about two hours. So I appreciate you in listening. And uh, there might be pieces that you don't agree with. Maybe there's pieces that you do agree with. But I think it's important in, today, in today's society that we listen to other voices, not just ours are the ones that confirm what we believe, but different voices. And in listening, I think we get further from where we are right now. And I, I, I think that's the best direction that we can go in. So thank you for your time. And I hope you enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we got Chris with us. How are you doing, Chris? I'm not too bad yourself. I, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I mean, we were talking a little bit before this, so whenever I ask that question, it's kind of like, you know, how are you doing, right? But uh, I, I want to thank you for, uh, for coming on our, our, our show today because there's a lot going on in the world. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have some perspectives on it, but... My, you know, these, these are just my perspectives and it's kind of like a, what do I know? Right. So right. we'll get into that. And, uh, uh, I, I truly, I thank you for that. So COVID has been going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're, you're an actor. Um, how has that been working for you? Um, well, when COVID uh, decided to come uh, into town, uh, I was actually like quite on a on a on a roll in my um, my uh, theatrical and commercial career. So I had booked within God less than three weeks of each other. I booked uh, three commercials and a uh, TV show, and uh, so I booked. Uh, yeah, I think I booked like two commercials within like a week of each other. And then after that, I found out I booked a TV show. And then as I was leaving the set of that TV show, like at nine o'clock at night, my agent lets me know that I booked a commercial. And then uh, when you book a commercial, they basically call you and they let you know when your, um, uh, your fitting session for like the clothes is going to be. And then, so they let me know that. And then within the set, like God, 10 hours, uh, the costume department called me back and let me know that uh, it was canceled. Uh, the whole project was canceled because of COVID. And then it was just this thing that um, basically locked out the entire industry up until uh, late July is when we started to st uh, start getting back into things. But even now it looks completely different. Like I do um, all of my auditions, like 90% of my auditions are uh, self tapes. So you basically film yourself in the scene that they want. Uh, they tell you the things that they want to see in the scene, and then you basically film yourself, you send it off, and then um, you hope that you uh, were able to give them what it is that they were looking for. But it's just, 
uh, it's a very different feeling than actually being in the room and being able to interact with people during a scene. Right. Um, but yeah, we're starting up slowly but surely. Yeah, because I guess, uh, um, you know, I've, I've never done that, right? But I, I guess there's like table readings yep. and stuff like that. So you're in the room with people, you're reading the script for the audition. Is that kind of how it, it used to work? BC before COVID? Well, well, table reads, table reads is more when you actually have got the job and now you're sitting down gotcha. with all of the, you know, the, the actors. Uh, for commercials, they'll usually give you like a breakdown of what it is that they're looking for. So if they're like, okay, in this scene, you're a dad and you are barbecuing and your kids are sort of running around and we want to see that on your face. <laughs> um, and then if they don't, if you're not face. giving them what it is. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and if you're not giving them what it is that they want, they're in the room. They're able to tell you uh, less of that, more of this. Right. But on self-tape, you basically have them giving you the breakdown of what it is that they want to see. And you're hoping that you're giving them what they want. Um, but it's just a lot harder when you're not in the room with casting directors, um, when you're not in the room in a callback with the actual client and representatives of the company it's a lot different. And especially with me, which I think one of my strengths is in person, there's like a different level of engagement and um, uh, charm or magnetism mm. that on camera, like through a video, you're just not going to capture with me. So it's just been different trying to now, and you know, having to buy different equipment. Like I realize I'm going to have to buy a tripod. I'm going to have to buy um, like a blue sheet. Cause usually on self tapes, they like the background to be this particular blue color right. for some reason. So I realize I'm gonna have to invest in that because uh, this is uh, uh, lasting a lot longer than I had imagined it would. So it's completely changed the way that uh, I do things. Well, and, and going to what you do, I mean, your success, I've kind of watched it because, you know, we're friends on Facebook. Yeah. And, and it's been like a Cambrian mm -hmm. explosion for you, man. Like, I think it was it three years ago you signed on to that agency. And since then, it's been like... I've seen you on Amazon Prime on that upload show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've seen yeah. you in commercials. And it's so cool for me because I'm like, I know that guy. And, and, and right, in, right, your, right. In, in the one commercial that I saw, it was for like, a, you were like in a car or something. And it was, because uh, I remember you from high school as, as again, because you were involved in drama. It was like, that's a Chris that yeah. I, I remember acting, right? Because it was this so, so expressionful. Right. And so it, T tell us about your, your recent success. Is it, is it like four years ago that you, you signed with that agency and since then? Yeah. So I signed in uh, September of 2016. Okay. And uh, that basically came from me doing uh, theater because theater is what I'm classically trained in. That's what right. I've been doing um, all my life. The commercial and film stuff just came, uh, you know, after from people seeing me. So it was... Uh, I decided in 2015 that I was just going to get back into uh, theater because that's what I'd, I'd gone to. I, I took it all through elementary school, middle school, mm -hmm. high school, post-secondary. And I just, you know, wasn't really doing anything with all of my training. And then it was just, uh, you know, you get it to a point in life where um, you are lacking fulfillment in, in your life. And it's usually because you're not doing what you're meant to be doing. You're doing stuff that just doesn't... Uh, doesn't really bring you any real fulfillment. It just brings you a paycheck. Um, and then, so yeah, it was in 2015. I remember in February, I was just, I was a Sunday night and I decided I'm going to get back into theater. 
and I started into uh, community theater, which is uh, unpaid. I did uh, three shows. Uh, I did, uh, do you remember Surrey Little Theater? Oh yeah, yeah, it's right that by my the, house on, on yeah, yeah, 4th Street. That's the one, that's where oh. I, that's the first show I ever did called The Truth and Reconciliation. And then I moved on to two other shows, uh, two other community theater shows. And then I moved on to semi-professional theater, which is like you get paid a, an honorarium. Um, so for the entire time, which, you know, it's the first time I'd gotten paid uh, for acting. And then after that show, my fourth show is when uh, I had uh, these two, uh, two women from the uh, agency at the time called Refinery um, approached me and they were just like, we are, uh, would be really interested in representing you. And I was not looking. I did yes. not... I just, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, I, I was like, eventually I'm going to have to get an agent if I want to, you know, progress in my career. But um, it was just like a daunting thing of like, okay, well, how do you do that? What agency is the best for me? And then they just came knocking and uh, it was uh, one of them, because uh, I had two agents representing me, one of them uh, by the name of uh, Rebecca, she had seen me in the first community show that I'd ever done. So, and she was like, I've, I've remembered you ever since then. And she's like, now that I work for an agency, I would really like it if uh, we could represent you. And, and that, was, that was the agency that recently closed down, I think you're, you're sharing. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. They were, uh, they started as Refinery. They changed the name to um, Mint. And then, yeah, literally two, uh, last Monday, I get a call from uh, my agent, Mary, and she's just like, don't really know how to tell you this, but, um, you know, we've, uh, when your agents receive auditions, they're called breakdowns. And she's like, the agency has been, what she said, been blocked from receiving them, which essentially means I can't give you any work. Um, so basically we have to unload the entire roster. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, um, not a, not a particularly fun time to have to try to find a new agency, an agent, especially because um, I booked the most stuff with uh, these two agents, uh, Mary and now uh, Rhea, who right. I'm, you know, uh, retaining. She moved on to another agency and I'm following her there. So at yes. least I was able to keep, um, you know, an agent that has just been working so hard for me since, um, God, when did I get Rhea? 2017, 2018? So, um yeah, so I just, uh, I signed all the paperwork to switch over, uh, and uh, now I'm with uh, Connect Creative, and uh, we'll see what happens there. Well, I mean, uh, you know, like I said, I've seen your work, and, you know, I, I know that there's nothing but good things ahead. Thank I want to talk about this, this, this switch in 2015, and I think so many people can relate to that, that you were kind of living this life that you said that wasn't bringing you any joy, you weren't passionate yeah. about it. And you just made this decision that you're like, you know, I, I'm doing what I want to love. So can you For tell sure. us a little bit about that? Well, what, what was going on there? What were you doing? Yeah, before? well, it was just, um, I had been, my God, um, I started at uh, Tommy Hilfiger in 2007. I was living in um, Montreal. Uh, I was going to school there. And um, I just, you know, for a job, I started a Tommy Hilfiger. I was stocking, uh, you know, uh, the, the stock room. And then I just kind of moved up as the years went along. And then when I moved back to BC, um, I just kept my job and I just kept moving up. And then I eventually became a manager. But it was nothing that gave me real um, fulfillment. It was just like, it was a job. 
Uh, and I knew that this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So like when they would offer me promotions, I'd be like, nah, this is kind of my limit here is like, I'll be one of several managers in a store, but I'm not trying to go up the ladder. Um, and then, you know, just being on social media, you start to see other people's lives and people are, you know, getting married and buying houses and doing all of that. And while that is not what I want out of my life, you're still like, they're progressing in their lives in a way that is most meaningful to them. And I can't relate to that. And then, so um, I remember talking with my mother, my mother who's been uh, working with the, the bank as long as I've been alive. Um, and she was just, I was just, I remember calling her, I was in Montreal uh, on vacation and I called her and I was just like, I'm feeling really just down because I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And then she's like, so what do you think you should do? And I was like, I think that this would all be solved if I had like a grown up job. So her being with the bank and she's had literally every position she's um, like in, in an executive position now, but at the time she had every type of connection. So I was like, I think I want to work, you know, for the bank. Cause that would make me feel as though I'm, I have like a career now. I'm adulting. I'm adulting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'd be able to relate now. Um, and then she was like, she looked at me and she was like, I mean, if that's what you want. Uh, but she was like, I really think that you should get back into acting. She's like, you're so good at it. And it's just, you come alive on stage. But now at the time, despite the fact that I'd gone to post-secondary for, you know, that training, I still never thought that I would do that as a career because for, for me- For acting, you, your training was in acting. Was exactly. Yeah. And I just, yeah. for me, I was just like, it doesn't make sense to me that something that just comes so naturally to me and that I enjoy so much would be my career. I just, I just never, for some reason- That's not thought, how it's supposed to be, right? Yeah, you're exactly. supposed to hate your nine to five, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, it yeah. was just, I was just like, you're supposed to like come at the end of the day and just be like, throw your stuff on the couch and just be like, ha, ah, that's supposed to be your career. Because um, that's what I'd seen all of my life with, you know, people around me is that they were, and especially coming from um, a Haitian background. Right. In a Haitian family, you don't do what you love. You do what supports your family, what, you know, gives you the ability to buy a house, a car, yeah. and all of those things. So it was just, it had never occurred to me that that would be my career based on those criteria. And then, you know, my mom, you know, pulling the strings uh, from, you know, the back as she does, she, I got a job at um, Royal Bank. And uh, within less than two months, I realized that I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. And people who have worked with me will tell you that I probably never smiled once. And this is a job where, you know, you're interfacing with, you know, clients and you have to have a pleasant demeanor and like people be like, oh, good morning. And I'd just be like, hi, how can I help you? Like it just, you get no engagement from me. And uh, I remember coming home, it was like a really cold, rainy day in December. And I just, um, I came home and I went to, to go see my mom first. And then uh, I was just like, I hate it. I, I hate mm. it. I, I never thought I could hate something as much. And then she was just like, so what do you, so she was like, so now that you don't have that thing that you thought it was going to give you, what are you going to do? First of all, did she say, I know? Did she say, I, I, well, I realize you hate this? <laughs> well, that's the part that where she's like evil genius, because after yeah. she said that, I was just like, I think I need to get back into something that makes me feel alive. And I was like, I think I'm going to get back into acting. And then she goes, she was like, I was wondering how long it was going to take to break you. 
So she had planned this whole thing. She made sure I'd get the job, but she was essentially, she knew that I was going to hate it so that I would eventually get to where she knew I was supposed to be, which was acting. So she did all of this to make sure, like, to make me realize it doesn't matter what the grown-up job is. You're never going to feel that fulfillment because you're not doing something that you love. What you love to do is acting. That's what you should be doing. And it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, The Alchemist, uh, but that is essentially a book that I, when I read after I decided to, you know, pursue acting again, um, it mirrored my life exactly. It's somebody who's searching for this treasure and it was where he started all along. Yes. Um, so it was like, yeah. And then after that, I was like, no, I'm actually going to do this. And I remember um, where I used to live, which was right by like Surrey Little Theater. Like it takes me 10 minutes to walk there. And um, I had always sort of just dismissed it because it's this little, I mean, you know, little tiny yeah. shabby building yeah. that used to be a church. And I was just like, for me, I always was like, no, if I'm going to be an actor, it needs to be in big grand right. theater. Yeah. Not, not ever realizing logically that you don't start there. Yeah. You start at this, the little, you know, you start small and then you accumulate and you build up so that now, you know, when I'm, you know, when I act now, I am in the bigger theaters, but I started small, but it was, um, you know, when I started, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about, oh, I'm going to have this big grand career. I just wanted to do something that mm -hmm. made me feel purpose again, to make me feel joy because, you know, going to a job that you hate to come home, make dinner, watch TV, go to sleep and repeat all over again is not a life. It that takes is its, a, and it a takes its toll on your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So, yeah. uh, you know, you, you crack the code and you're reaping the benefits, man. You know, that's, well, that's the thing. And I mean, in my younger, more arrogant days, cause I think that when we're younger, it just arrogance and youth kind mm. of goes together. Cause you yeah, think, I threw my twenties. You know, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, I just, I, I remember just always being, you know, unless there was a paycheck attached to it, I wouldn't do it. And now I realize that every opportunity does not always come with a paycheck. Sometimes you have to put the work in on the ground floor and just, like I said, I did community theater for um, like a little less than two years, but it was just me because I loved acting. And then now I'm getting paid, my God. Um, sometimes I make, you know, uh, if, if I'm thinking, if my rent is like 1300, sometimes I make, you know, six months of rent in a day off yeah, of, you know, yeah. being on set for a commercial, being, you know, filming uh, TV shows and stuff like that. And it's just like, had I rejected the, um, you know, the opportunity that didn't come with a paycheck, I would not have everything I have now. Right. Right. You know, so sometimes you just, just doing it, doing something for the love of it will always, you'll never go wrong doing that. Doing something for the love of money, you will always fail. <laughs> that yeah. is such a powerful message because I talk to people and I look at myself and, uh, you know, I love what I do. I'm a counselor uh, in yeah. the school system, um, mm -hmm. you know. But, but then I, when I do this, I'm like, whoa, this is what I love doing, right? I love yeah, talking yeah. to people. I love challenging myself. And, you know, I haven't made a single cent off this. In fact, I've, you know, I've lost money and I'm okay with right. that, right? right? Because this right, is right. my passion. And when you're living right. 
in your passion, your life, like you said, has purpose. Yes. Now, kind of going back, uh, I think the last time I saw you was when I was in high school. Yes, it was. Do you remember when? Because I remember the exact scenario. Tell, tell me about it, because I, I don't know if I do. <laughs> so I think that, um, I think you were a year, you graduated a year before I did, I think. I think um, you're a year older than me. You're a year older than me. Oh, so you were... Okay, I, I graduated okay. in 2007. Okay, okay, then that's, I got it mixed up then. Um, I remember being at, uh, used to work at Boston Pizza by the Cineplex, I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was with my best friend, uh, Angela, and we'd sat down and then you were just like, you were, um, I don't think we knew each other from, from high school. We didn't really have any interactions in high school, but when we uh, we were a server. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I knew of you. Right, right. And we'll we'll get to uh, that too. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, You were our server and uh, you were just like, you're just a super friendly guy. And then we ended up, you know, finding out that uh, you were like, oh, you went to Clayton Heights as well. And uh, it was just, yeah, since then it was just like, uh, it was just, it was a, I remember it was a very pleasant dinner. We talked a lot and uh, yeah, we've just uh, Facebook friends after that. And then we've been sort of seeing each other uh, progress, uh, I guess, in our lives. I've been seeing you going to a bunch of metal concerts because that's your thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's my first, our first dialoguing together, right. as I recall it. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and since then, there's been, uh, you know, leaps and bounds and, you know, you're never there. Once you think that you're there in anything in life, mm-hmm. you got problems. That's, that's my right. belief, right? You yeah. always have to yeah. be a student. If you're a teacher, yeah. you have to be a student still. That's um, right. But growing up in our, our community in, in Cloverdale, mm-hmm. uh, as I'm sure that you can, you can speak to, it's, it was quite homogenous, right? There was a lot of white faces. Oh, well, that was the shock for me because now imagine in Montreal, Quebec, which is the second most, maybe first at this point, diverse city in Canada after Toronto. And I also mm. remember I, when I left, I left, um, so I was born in Montreal. I grew up in, on a, in a city in the south shore of Montreal called um, Saint-Subert. And I left there when I was about 10. I moved to Mississauga, Ontario. So okay. I've now lived in two of the most diverse places in Canada. And then I go all the way to the West Coast to a, a, you know, a town called Cloverdale. And I remember <laughs> my first day of high it's school. It's the name, Cloverdale. Yeah, I was just like, and I remember my mom sort of showing me the area before. Like when we'd moved there, she was like, this is going to be you know, your school. This is how you would walk there. And I remember just seeing like farm, 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 farm. And I'm like, where the hell are you taking me? And uh, our school at the time, like people now that are going there will never know this, but at the time, Clayton Heights was right beside like farm. Like there was Mm. nothing, there was none of these condos and mini malls. It was farm and open field and forest. It's the area is unrecognizable. uh, Yeah. Oh yeah. Like does not look like at all. Like how I, when we went to high school, and I remember my first day and it was just like white everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'd been used to being in, you know, classrooms where, right. um, you know, in, in, in Mississauga, there was an equal representation of each group where you want to talk about 
Africans, West Indians, Europeans, Asians, it was all covered. So you never felt othered. And I remember going into my first class that day and it was just like, they, you know, um, who was the old curmudgeon social studies teacher at the oh. end? Um, what Mr. Hall, his, Mr. Hall. Mad. Mr. Mr. Hall. Yeah. That, yeah, he was always mad. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that uh, it was my first, my first uh, class and he sort of like, I went in with the counselor, I think Mrs. Caldwell, and uh, she introduced me, oh, Chris is new to our, you know, to the school, he's coming from Mississauga. And I remember Mr. Hall, the first thing he said, he looked at me and he was like, oh, okay, this is gonna be interesting. And I was just like- He said that. Okay. Oh, he sure did. And I was just like, okay. And then he was like, all right, well, find a seat. And I remember just scanning the room and no one was right. offering a seat. It literally took like, it must have been less than a minute, but it felt like a, a good solid oh. minute of me like trying to find yeah. a space. And then finally someone begrudgingly was like, I guess you can sit here. Um, and yeah, it was just, but, and then, it, and then I realized going class to class to class, it was like that in every class. And then you look at the school and it was like of however many students there were 11, 1200 students, I was, one yeah. of seven black students. Yeah. And that was like, that was the first time I felt othered. That was the first time I remember um, understanding how the world views blackness when they don't have it around them constantly. I'm going to speak right now to my own, uh, you know, whiteness, if you will. Mm -hmm. But my education with, uh, with blackness was what I saw on TV. Right. So right. we're talking Chris Tucker, we're talking Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, Tupac, all these hugely successful, hugely popular figures. And I'm right. thinking like, okay, that's what blackness is. So it's, it's being a good actor. It's being a good, you know, this, that, or the next thing. Mm -hmm. And, and that's sort of how I saw that culture. And I'm right. using the term that obviously very clearly. And right. I wonder if, growing up as you, you're, you're, you're being othered, you're clearly like, oh my God, I'm, I'm another. If you feel like you have to now in, fit into those stereotypes. Um, I did for a brief moment in high school mm -hmm. where, again, if your only exposure to black people is through media, you're going to get a very skewed, very yes. one dimensional view of us that is not at all realistic or representative of us as a whole. So I remember, you know, when it, you know, in PE class, when uh, the basketball, you know, unit would come through and people were like, oh, we want Chris on our team because he's going to make a bunch of three pointers. Keep in mind, I'm horrible at basketball. So I was just like, no, nah, you're, you're, yeah. you're going to be in for a very rude awakening. You're making you a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're making a mistake. Exactly. And it was like people expecting me to be able to like freestyle rap on, you know, and I was just like, no, like this is, you know, and especially coming from a family of, you know, uh, my father's side who are all Haitian, all professionals, doctors, lawyers, professors, engineers, there's not, I don't, I'm not, that's not my culture. So it was just odd to me. I was just like, that's, this is not who I am. And even the way that I would speak, 
they were expecting this very sort of broken Ebonics type of English. And then when I, when they wouldn't get that, they were like, why do you speak like a white person? And then what, and I remember one of them during a class, they're like, oh, his mom is white. And I was like, no, no, it has nothing to do with the fact that my mother's white because my father speaks the same way that I do. It's, I speak, I speak based on the way that I was, that I was educated. So, and furthermore, if you are equating speaking intelligently with being white, that is a further problem that you need to deconstruct in your head because speaking in grammatically correct, complete sentences is not a white or black thing. It's just, it, it is what it is. Well, so, and, and I think too, uh, and like I said, please correct me on any of the crazy mm-hmm. shit that I might say, but a lot of what comes in is very Americanized, right? Yes. Like, although, yes. At least on the West Coast. And I grew up on the West Coast. So my yep. perspective is entirely based on this. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't even understand who I was, you know, until I got out of this, you know, this uh, myopic homogenous society. Because you don't really understand what it right. is to be in the dominant culture until you're outside of it, right? Because if you're going to stay in the dominant right. culture, you're always going to think like, well, they don't know how hard I had it, right? And I marched in the 60s and all that BS, right? Right, right. Because right. they're stuck in their little confirmation silo, right? Confirmation by right. silo. Now, I, had a, I, I, I have a friend and like I, like I talk about him quite often because I love this guy, man. And he helped change right. my life because he had, he's, has a West Indies background and we went to Barbados and right. I wasn't staying on no resort. Right. I was like in Barbados. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to Barbados, but I stick out. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and as I was experiencing this, I realized, you know, whoa, I'm only here a week. Imagine what my friend feels like being on the West Coast of Canada, clearly another, mm-hmm. and what he experiences every day. And I was able to have that conversation with him. And I had a great trip, but it was eye-opening. And it made me understand what the dominant culture is here. Because mm-hmm. here in, Can- in, in BC, everything is so sanitized, right? And, and it's like, that's actually not how the world works, right? Right. We're white people, I'm saying this, we are soft. I think, well, when you talk about Western culture, well, when you talk about the Western side of things, which is dominated by, by white people, yeah. it is, and I, I guess the, 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 the fir- more of the, the, the younger generations, it's this sort of expectation that everything belongs to you and everything mm. should come easily and that any adversity is just like, you should be happy at all times. And that's not how life works. So when you have people from West Indian backgrounds, from African backgrounds who understand a different side of life that is harder and that, you know, to survive looks a lot differently than us who have everything at our fingertips, it has, you, you, you come with a different mentality. Um, and, you know, here, and that's the thing here, even, you know, I would say North Americans are just incredibly soft and just brittle in terms of uh, mentality of just like, that offends me and you can't do this and you can't do that. And it's just like, I would really like for people who have a very 
um, privileged life to go to places, um, you know, in Africa, go to Haiti, go to mm -hmm. places that don't have what we have here and sort of learn, a, a, a gain a different perspective on what people have to do for survival and um, like you experienced, what being othered feels like. Yeah. And, and for me, yeah. it was, it was quite positive, you know, like, uh, yeah. uh, but for most people, it might not be. And it, and it, sh it should be uncomfortable, right? Life. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, am very privileged. Right. And, and when I mm -hmm. say things like white people are soft, I'm speaking predominantly for myself. I am soft. Right. Okay. I mean, I cried when I today when I dropped my daughter off at daycare. Right. This is a three hundred dollar a month daycare. She's all right. You Ooh. know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You got so, money like that, Rob? Okay. I wish I had money like that. <laughs> you know, the interest is crazy. But um, uh, I just I, I I look at some of these things, and I've started reading James Baldwin, mm -hmm. and I'm bringing everything together eclectically. There's this film that came out recently, and this is actually what I wanted to mention. Is have you seen the film Get Out? Sure have. Okay, that to me, racism isn't like burning crosses and like you know, the the violence that we think it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's more like the Get Out, like the, this liberal, like, hey, this kind of who's coming. Have you seen the film Who's Coming to Dinner? Sure have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I love that guy. And uh, yeah. and it's just like, uh, hey, like, oh, look at your skeletal structure. Like, are you an MMA in this like kind of creepy? I love Barack yes. Obama. He's my favorite president. Yes. And there, it's just like, it's this underlying race. Like, I can't even speak to it, but that film, I love that film because that to mm -hmm. me, is what is what the dominant culture does. That's what I have done, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's um, I mean, <laughs> that film now, obviously, well, part fiction and a lot of it truth, based in truth. But that is why I have a lot of trust issues today with white women, because it's just like I've been in settings like that where it's just like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just yeah. feels. It just feels off. Um, but yeah, I mean, all through, and I think it's a, it's a, despite the fact that it's, a, it's, you know, an American film in terms of the director and the actors and stuff like that, to me, um, it's very representative of Canada. So yes. Canada, who, you know, totes themselves as, you know, we're all accepting of different cultures, da, da, da. Um, it's very easy to, appear to be in the way that Canada portrays itself when your big brother is the United States. And when you have a bigger brother that's always getting into trouble, that's always doing the, you know, um, always screwing up in a, in a much bigger way, it's easier to hide behind that. You know, if you're just, if you're looking at like a, an analogy of like, you know, if you have a younger or older sibling and it's that sibling that's always getting in trouble, you are then able by extension to get away with a little, you know, with doing stuff that is not as big, but it's still bad. And I feel like that's what Canada is. Canada tries to sort of sweep things under the rug, tries to give this sort of um, image of, well, no, we never had slavery here. We never had segregation. We never did this. And it's just like, 
you have a lot of blood on your hands. What is a reservation? You want to acknowledge it or not. Like what's an indigenous reservation? Like what's an indigenous reservation? Right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's, uh, that's our genocide, you know? And, well, uh, and even think about in our lifetimes, the last residential school closed in 1996. Yeah. We were like, we were fully formed talking human beings at that point. And it's just <laughs> like, it's, it's, and it's odd that we just, we don't learn these things in social studies. I know that when I went to high school in the Mr. Hall's class, we learned about you know, the forming of Canada, but it was never about the segregation of Canada. It was never about the slavery that happened in Canada. It was never about the genocide of indigenous people. It was always this very whitewashed, um, look at look at how great we are type of history. And I'm just like, that's not a complete history. That isn't to mm-hmm. say that Canada is this um, evil place, but it is to say that you have to recognize what you have done and recognize how your country was built and the human suffering that occurred in the formation of your country. And you can't just pretend as though it didn't happen because then you are erasing and invalidating an entire part of your history. Right. And uh, I, I like what you say about, you know, I, Canada is a great country. It's a safe country, but it is not a perfect country and pride ourselves on this multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm going to strip it down even further here on the West coast. There's a lot of, you know, I hear whisperings, not even whisperings, but there's, there's, um, tension between the Southeast Asian community, right? The Indian people from Indian backgrounds. Um, there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of racial tension here. Mm-hmm. And if we think that we're so above it, you know, we're, we're, we're so far off. And you nailed it in what you're saying with the Jesse Ward speech of, you know, here on the West Coast, we don't have awards that represent uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Mm-hmm. Right? What is, what is the, the Jesse Award, by the way? Is that for theater? Yeah, the Jesse Award is um, the biggest award you can get in Canada for professional theater. So that is like, Whoa. if you were to look, yeah. And I Googled it by like province and um, they're in, in, in British Columbia, the Jesse is the highest honor that you can be awarded for theater. So um, yeah, but um, it seems like every year that there's a Jesse's, there's a, there's a, a controversy about it, which is the lack of um, representation. And that's how I found out about the Jesse's was because actually when I did the shipment, um, that's when I met all of the cast and, you know, we're still friends to this day, but Omari, who's a big activist in the community, I found out about the Jesse's because he had told us during rehearsals that he had written, I think in 2015, a letter to the Jesse's basically, uh, I think one year there was not a single black nominee or even nominee of color, I believe. And he was just like, what is this? Like there are, this doesn't make sense. This is not a representation of our community. And how can you, like it is, it is a completely skewed view of the theatrical landscape in Vancouver. And that's when I first found out about the Jessies. And it seems like every year um, there is a um, uh, condemnation about the, um, the award show in general and that it lacks a lot of um, diversity. Now, some people say things, and you know what? I, I hate, I hate 
doing that when people are like, fuck people, when really it's like, well, these are actually my thoughts. So sometimes I see things and uh, I wonder like, okay, are they doing that just to get representation? For example, I thought Black is King was phenomenal. Black Panther, I thought was okay. I thought it was great that they had this character who's black and they, and my favorite line is, you know, don't touch me colonizer. I thought that was awesome. But, but I think it was nominated for like best picture of the year. Mm -hmm. Something like that. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. This is just my taste. Are they doing that? Of course. Because (laughs) it has this, um, you know, it's black or are they doing it because it's a great film? Right. And I guess in, in terms of art, because art is entirely subjective, there's not really a clear metric in which you can objectively ju- judge it. Because if you felt it, it, it touched you in a way that, you know, another person completely right. doesn't get it, it's, it's not like sports where I can measure you based on this amount of points, this amount of that. I can't, you can't measure art in that way. Right. Um, I will say of all of the, you know, the Marvel uh, films, cause I'm a, I'm a Marvel fan since day one, um, Black Panther was absolutely my favorite, but there was a, specifically for black people, it was a shift because if you start to pay attention to the patterns in Hollywood, every mm. three to four years, there is this civil rights slavery movie that keeps getting recycled so it'll be um one year it'll be the help then it'll be um 12 years a slave then it'll be like and it's all of these and it just keeps getting recycled and it shows black people in a very specific narrative that is always us in a lesser position it is always us subservient to someone and then it's like there's always some white savior that comes to save us and then it was just like Well, exactly. And it all blindside is another one that I think was nominated. Um, But it's always the same thing of black people being in subservient positions. And for some reason, our history always starts with us being slaves. Mm -hmm. It never shows before. It always starts with us. You were you started as slaves and this is that. And Black Panther was. um, And for me, too, I had that feeling. I was just like, are they just because a Marvel movie has never been nominated before. and I was just like, are they just doing this to sort of do the PC thing? But, you know, for me, Black Panther, I mean, I saw Black Panther in the theaters like four times. Um, and it was just seeing people that did not need to be saved by a white person. It yeah. was seeing a, a system of governing that had um, Black people in, in, you know, positions of power. Um, the, you know, the King's bodyguards are all these beautiful, dark-skinned yes. Black women yeah. And to me, I was just thinking about all the little girls who will see that and not, oh, I, I'm not a maid. I'm not a slave. I am in, you know, a position of like, I'm, 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 I'm a badass. And it was just like, it, it just, it, it just was a cultural reset to me. So the movie for most black people just meant far more because right. it was just like, you know, black people in Africa started out as kings and queens. And while Wakanda may, you know, is not a real place the traditions that they showed, the, 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 the costumes that they showed are all based on actual African cultures across the continent. So the other it, just, that- it just meant for me, whether you know, people feel like it wasn't worthy of an academy, you know, academy recognition, to me, it was one of the best movies of the year just based on how it made me feel.
that yeah th- that is a really good point because i i just i saw that film and then i thought about selma which mm-hmm. i didn't don't get that, any recognition yeah like what the because i saw that movie in theaters and i was like wow this guy like i thought yeah. that was martin luther king jr yeah i don't know yeah. what that actor's name is because i'm not really good with that kind of stuff like with actors names dude that guy nailed it that to me is like mm-hmm. so but but then you got movies like uh uh what was that one there was there was this movie where it's kind of three stories and it was about this black man who was gay and then at the same time there was this uh jazz movie with a bunch of white actors and that movie won the award oh um green book oh green and book? it was there, there's green book but then there was there was one before it and oh man this is okay i gotta look this up i gotta look this okay because i never saw it okay yes. what was that oh shit yeah. <laughs> uh, i can't i can't th- it'll come to me but anyways okay it, it, but but there was there was a whole they they read the award and it was the wrong award and they gave it out and then they were like oh, oh wait moonlight. Moonlight, thank you. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, so where I'm going with this is that what we, what, what perhaps us white people don't see is that the people that are in these, the Academy Awards and, and politics, and it's predominantly white people. So when it's all white people in power, mm-hmm. whose priorities are they representing? Well, that's the thing. And it's like, if you are in, in a position of power, because if you look at all, speaking still about the Academy Awards, if you look at all of the black winners, there's always to me like an asterisk beside it because they're all there for the most part, 95% of them, of the winners are stereotypical black roles. So whether you want to talk about Octavia Spencer winning for The Help, which she won for a maid, whether you want to talk about Lupita Nyong'o, who won for playing a slave who was brutally beaten and raped, whether you want to talk about Forrest Whitaker, who played Idi Amin, who was a brutal, you know, uh, from Uganda, I believe, uh, dictator, whether you want to talk about Denzel, who, despite his, the, the breadth of his work, won for playing a crooked cop, whether you want to talk about, um, uh, the first black winner who was Hattie McDaniel, who won for playing Mammy in uh, Gone with the Wind, who, by the way, was not even able to attend the award ceremony in the same space as the white actors. So you look at sort of this history, there's only really one, um, a couple that come to mind, like Whoopi Goldberg won for um, Ghost, which could have gone to, you know, a, 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 there was nothing particularly black about that role she won just because she was a great actress but there are very few within black nominees within black movies that get nominated that is like it's a story that could have it's not necessarily a black story it's not fitting that narrative right exactly yeah yeah so it just keeps reinforcing that that like oh you know uh the only way that you'll be able to get recognition is if you play a maid a slave a butler um, all of these things, like you'll only get recognition in these very particular um, roles. And oh, and another one, 
Monique, who won and she played a um, mm. uh, mentally unstable, you know, black mother on welfare. And it was just like, is there no, are there no other roles? Because if you look at white winners, Meryl yeah. Streep can win for playing damn near every role <laughs> and gets recognized for playing every role across the spectrum. Right. For us, it's a very one-sided monolithic thing, which I'm like, why? You know? What? Now, I... I uh... This is, this is where I talk about how, how forward thinking I am, how woke I am. But I read this <laughs> book and it's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which is mm-hmm. from a British perspective. And yep. she talks about trans, uh, is it trans, transecting lines? Because she talks about black feminism and okay. how, in, how in their own groups, there's this... Uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, hold on. Let's talk about this first and then talk about that. Like there's camps within it. That's right. So in your, in your work, do you, do you see a lot of that happening here in, in the communities in Vancouver and on the West coast? In terms of what? Well, she talked about like, okay. So you, you, you mentioned about these, these, uh, the narratives and breaking away from these narratives. Right. But, but in terms of black feminism, it's like, no, no, we're going to put black feminism aside and we're just going to focus on the black narrative. And, and the feminists, that's like a white people thing, right? Oh, yeah, like white feminism. Oh, yeah, yeah Vancouver. Listen, we're after living, like I've been here for at least 10 years. Vancouver is probably of every city that I've lived in just because maybe of the demographics, but in... For me, they are the most unaware of how ignorant they come off. And it's always under this guise of, like you said, we're woke and we're with you, but it's, it always is under this sort of lens of either white feminism or something that is white first, and then we'll get to you if we have the time. Yes. Um, which is, you know, which was a lot of what my speech was about was just like, you say that you're all of these things, you say that you're allies to us, but it's like, until... George Floyd happened until Ahmaud Arbery happened until Breonna Taylor happened. You had nothing to say. I can tell you the week that George Floyd was murdered, my God, 20 people that don't usually speak to me, they're just like, Hey, are you okay? And I had no idea it was like this for black people. And I'm like, well, if you know me, you will know that I've been speaking on these issues since high school. And which is what a lot of a big part in high school, which is why I was, um, you know, uh, was disliked by a lot of white people was because I would say a lot of pro-black things. Um, But I was just like, if you've known me, you would know that I've been speaking about this. But again, it took a pandemic to happen and everything being shut down so that we could focus and not be distracted and actually see what black people have been telling white people, which is this is not a fair system. We do not operate in the same rules as you do. And it took everything, sports being taken away, um, being able to go outside and into you know, public places, being taken away and just being forced into our homes and just focusing on the news that would unfurl without any distraction to, for people to finally be able to go, oh, oh, I guess what they were saying is true. Um, so yeah, Vancouver is... Um, to me, that's been my experience with Vancouver. There have been very few non-Black people who have 
listened the first time when we've spoken or who have come to us before a catastrophe happens. Um, it's just not been my experience. It's been a lot of, you know, when people say like, you know, even taking out of a context of like an ally, but people who say that they're, you know, your friends um, and, you know, I'm sure this happened to you, but like, yeah, Rob, you know, I've got your back, whatever you need. And then when it comes time to needing them to sort of fulfill what they said they were going to do, oh, I'm busy. Oh, you know, I'd really love to, but uh, an excuse, excuse, excuse. And that's sort of been my experience, you know, with um, theatrically anyways, with Vancouver, it's been a lot of, you know, well wishes and, you know, I'm with you, but when it comes time to putting in the hard work, radio silence. Wow. That's frustrating. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, a friend of mine who I brought him up before, but he's quite involved in the black community and mm -hmm. he's, he's an educator and he's like, mm -hmm. He's told me, he's like, yeah, I'm like the only black educator that, you know, there, there's very few of us, what he says. And now there's a Black Lives Matter that's going on in, in Vancouver. And he's mm -hmm. like, you know what, man? Like, and, and for the record, I apologize for sharing his stories, but I can't, if I, I can't share this story. So, you know, mm -hmm. if he's listening, thank you for, for allowing me to share this. Um, but he's like, I don't want to get involved in that because it doesn't feel like it's genuine to him, which is something that you kind of mentioned in your speech and just recently. And it's like, is this like these people that are holding up the signs, is this legit or are we doing no, it because no, it's, it's social not. media, right? It's not. And I can tell you because I went to, I think the second protest that they had in, uh, in Vancouver for Black Lives uh, for Black Lives Matter, and I was so disappointed and disgusted mm. with what I saw. It was a bunch of and take it from an actor who knows what a performance looks oh. like. Performances, <sighs> nothing but performances. I don't care how many times you raise your fist; it means nothing to me because. And it was a lot of people who literally were like, "Oh, can you hold my phone? Can you take a picture of us holding our sign?" And I'm just like what why why are you here you know black equality and if you really feel like a black life matters it is not about taking a picture posting it on your instagram and look at the good deed i did for today and that's what the rally was i literally looked around and i was just like what the hell is this and i ended up leaving because i was like i my blood pressure is going up i can't like i just i i couldn't believe what i was seeing and it was just like people um and i just don't even it's even possible for black people within vancouver to not have a clue of what it is that they are pushing forward because to me it was a lot of let's use black people to push forward a black agenda that really is under a white lens it was to me it was about making white people comfortable because if you look at stuff that's happening in the states and protests there it is very raw, it's powerful, it's a lot of unapologetically black standing up for your rights. Here it's very much like, here's the photo op, Instagram, and then as soon as they go home, I guarantee they will never think about this again. And that's what I saw there, because I was just like, this is obviously a time of change, but I was like, I wonder if Vancouver actually finally gets it. And when I went there, I was just like, nah, this ain't it. 
There was, because uh, you got me thinking, and I'm curious to know what you think of this. Mm-hmm. There was the, the blackout Tuesday on the phones. Everybody took a... Lord. Okay. So when I saw that, I was like, well, that's just a fad to me. But then I looked and people of color, my friends who are of color, they were doing it. So I thought, okay, well, if they're doing it, then, then I want to do it to support them. But what, what did that do? I guess what my question is, is I was looking around to see, okay, is it just white people doing this? Because then it's a load of shit. But my friends who are of color, they were doing it. And so I was like, okay, well, then I want to support them. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as with most of our movements, it gets started by somebody black and then gets co-opted by white people and right. starts to be diluted in a whole bunch of other things. But for a lot of people, and this was my criticism of the blackout uh, thing as well, was that that was the, the first black thing that I, they had ever posted on their Facebook feeds, their Instagram feeds, whatever it was. That was the first and only black thing. And then if you look after that, no mention of anything. So mm. that, that's why it's like you have to dis- discern from the performative and the profound. Because the people who I cared about posting that were people that you can go back as far back onto their feeds and they're talking about black issues, whether it's black people or non-black people, but you can see that they're all about equality and sort of moving the, the progression of, uh, of, 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 of equality uh, for black people and for all, for all marginalized people. But there was a lot of people, and you know, speaking to the, the- uh, theater scene, a lot of theater companies who had never, right. never once expressed anything for us posting a black tile. And there was actually, there was a company, uh, I have to find the name after, but that got called out for it because all on their feed and they had a history of sort of barring out people of color from doing, you know, productions with them. And then they post this tile and people were like, what is this? So... Um, but yeah, for me, it's just like, I don't just knowing Vancouver and knowing what I'm seeing, I don't buy it when it's being done because I'm much more interested in the work that the behind the scenes work that people don't need to take credit for. Like to me, it's, if I'm giving sort of an analogy, it's the difference between Beyonce and Kim Kardashian. Beyonce will do all of this activist, activist work. And she never speaks, never speaks on it. And it's literally years later, people will be like, oh yeah, Beyonce actually bailed, uh, you know, me out of, uh, you know, jail when I was arrested, you know, for, for protesting. She actually set up a fund so that we could be bailed out. Kim Kardashian is the one who has to make the Instagram post. Look what I did today. Look who I freed from jail. And it's just like, why do you need for people to see you in that light? If you are genuinely concerned about the work, and the advancement of equality, you being seen should not be a factor. It should be the last thing in your mind. It's like people now, you know, who take these sort of videos of them feeding the homeless and they make sure that they're being filmed so that they can post it. And it's like, look how good I am. It was like, well, for who are you, whose benefit are you doing this for? You know, and, and that's such a good point because you, this kind of brings it back to what you're saying before about you did this theater work and you did it because you were passionate about it and you weren't doing yeah. it for the accolades or the recognition. You were doing it because you needed to do it. It was your That's salvation. Right. 
right? That's right. I mean, maybe I, I, I don't want to mince words or, or, or inject words, but that's what I'm picking up is that this was oh, yeah. your saving grace, right? Yes. You weren't, you weren't like, Oh, you know, I, I deleted Snapchat. I hate that shit. Oh, so did uh, I. Because, <laughs> I'm not on that. Because I, I get these Facebook memories and I, dude, I am like the worst person. It wasn't until I had my daughter that I really have started to wake up. It's not about being woke. It's not like, Oh, okay. I'm there. Right. I'm there. I think all black people are great. It's like, okay, well, that's racist shit too. That's some get out shit right there, right? That's the exactly, pro, that is far yeah. left liberal sort of yeah. like, I'm going to be so pro this that it yeah. actually ends yeah. up being racist in of itself. Exactly, right? Yeah. So anyways, um, oh, fuck, where was I going? This always happens to me. I go on a tangent. You were going with, no, we'll, we'll get it back. We'll get it yeah, back. Yeah, you yeah. were going with, what is the intent of what you're doing? Are you doing yes. it so you show people how great you are or are you doing it because yes. it's the right thing? Because I exactly. believe that, I mean, I don't know about you, but people are selfish. And I, I know I'm a selfish person. Mm-hmm. Something's going off here right now. Give me one second. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. See, I had to, uh, my brother is at my office because I use my mom's house as an office for this. And okay. he's got two kids and they are like just bulls in a, in a, in a China shop. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I had to move it all here. And okay. anyways, that's why it's, it's a little bit different. So you'll see my, my amazing spouse partner who has made me a better person walking in the background here. So, okay. but anyways, my point is, is that what is the intent of what you're doing? And I can look at myself and the things I've posted on Facebook and I'm like ashamed of it because I know I did it for the recognition of everybody else. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to not be that when our culture is this Instagram culture of look at me, look at, because people are, and it's this another skewed version of social media. People are only going to post their highlight reel. They're not going to post their struggles. Yeah. So by extension, they're only going to post themselves in a very particular light. And it's again, in terms of, 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 of a civil rights of an equality thing, if you are at the center of that, you've lost the objective of, of the, the true goal of what we're doing, because it's not about you singularly it's about the collective now you can do things that benefit the collective but if it's if you are centering yourself at that to be like look how great of a person i am look how woke i am because that's the other currency in vancouver now that's taken over is sort of woke points Mm -hmm. and what i like to say a lot is people in vancouver are so woke that they need to go to bed like (laughs) you've been awake too long get some sleep you're starting to see things yeah or, or yeah. like a person who's had like 15 cups of coffee, like, yeah, yeah. we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this, we're going to include everybody. And it's like, dude, like, breathe, you know? Exactly. Breathe and just f- focus on what the actual, the larger objective is. And usually when there's a larger objective, it doesn't revolve around a singular person. It is much broader. So what I much prefer seeing is like people that are, um, posting about organizations, about this is what you can do to help versus people saying, this is what, um, how do I phrase this? This is how me 
as, uh, as a person, look what I did, look at this great thing I did. Right. And you all should do, you know, the same. And it's just like, that's another thing I don't like is people shaming people in order to get what they want. Like, I feel like there's, there's much better ways in sort of educating people than sort of what the woke mob likes to do, which is shame first and yes. sort of ridicule. You can educate somebody without making them feel inferior. Well, and, and, and that's how you, you bring upon that um, awareness, right? Instead of being like, so I was having this conversation with my uncle, which, uh, you know, I love this guy, but you got to understand, mm -hmm. I'm a kid. I've always been a kid in his eyes and I always will be, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But I'm challenging his perspective on things. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy for me, but that's the starting place because- yep we see that there's, there's, these, there's this white complacency. And, and I, was, I was telling you about it earlier. And it's like, when we don't say anything, we're allowing it to happen. And yes. it's not about getting these conversations right because we are going to make mistakes. I mean, even just me reaching out to you, I was like, oh, this is going to come across as, uh, you know, <laughs> right? Like, like it's going to seem insincere. Like, Hey, I'm a white person. I'm hoping that you can do right. Mm. But it's, it's like, how can we educate ourselves? And I put this post on Facebook. This is how great I am. So woke I am of, mm -hmm. uh, of white fragility. Yeah. And I was like, people read this book. It's a great book because the title, when I saw the title, I was like, you know, WTF is this, I'm not fragile. Right. And then, right. I'm like, well, hold on a second. I am being <laughs> fragile by me saying that. Right. Right. And that's yeah, what yeah. the book talks about. The book is phenomenal. Yeah. I encourage you. And people are like, I heard that that book is crazy. And I'm like, well, I've, did, did, did these people read it? Yeah. I think so. Oh, well, pfft, then pretty good review, and, right? Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I put it up there. And then this guy, he, he adds this thing. And it was, uh, you know, you don't need to apologize for things you haven't done. And then he- I added, commented on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I said, listen, man, I don't know where you're trying to go with this, but just read the book. And that's the thing is it's like, and it, it's so funny because what I commented was, I was like, you're literally proving the title of the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You are, you are enabled to go to see past yourself out of your feelings to be like, this is literally speaking to you. And it's almost like, you know, it's like when you tell you know, if we're specifically talking about white people, when you tell them that they're privileged and the first reaction what? is this big barrier of like, no, I'm not, I've been through adversity. And let me just share this with all of your listeners so that there's no confusion. Cause I see that even nowadays there's still confusion as to what white privilege means. Mm. White privilege does not mean that you will never go through adversity in your life. What it is saying is that your skin color will never be a factor that makes your life harder. That's literally all it means. And you, there's no need to get upset about it. It just, it is what it is. Society, white, um, whether you want to talk about colonialism, whether you want to talk about slavery, it dominated the world and, and changed it in, in a way that, that whiteness is seen as the sort of the dominating thing. Whether you want to talk about beauty standards that affect how, you know, to this day, how black people see themselves and sort of to attain this, um, this, this, this level of beauty that is not even our own, you know, like, 
And what's crazy to me is, is that, like when you think about people like the Kardashians, who for all intents and purposes are white, they're essentially taking black beauty standards and mm. remixing it and right. appropriating, appropriating it, you know, full lips, you know, big hips, asses, tan skin. We all have that naturally. So it's just like, I don't like, it's this weird whitewashing of like just everything where white approval, um, which is again, why I said what I said in my Jesse speech, you know, to the, the people of color in the community is that stop seeking white validation as this metric of I've made it. Just it's, it's not necessary because a lot of the times the, the metrics and the standards that, you know, they, they, they're not made for us. You know, I, I, and we have to start seeing each other as beautiful, as worthy enough without a white person saying, oh, wow, your work was really great. You know, versus if a black person says it, it's like, it doesn't mean as much. Like we have to start valuing what we think versus this, the, what society has intended, which is that white validation means you've made it. And that is the end all and be all goal for everything. And even, even so, like the, what I was, what we were texting earlier this week, when I heard the, the Captain Zimbabwe podcast. Yes, yeah, it, it I was going, yeah. It even affects black people without them even realizing it. And it's just like when he made the comment about, you know, oh, you know, people from, you know, Namibia, these mixed, you know, they're mixed. So they're really pretty, not like, you know, they're not like Sudanese dark skin. And I'm just like, what? And it was, and probably at the time, because everybody in the room that was there, you know, laughed along with him, probably at the time people didn't realize how big of an issue colorism is for black people. Yes. But this, again, this belief that because you are mixed and that you are lighter skinned, that you are somehow more exotic, better, more worthy of, of being called beautiful. And, oh no, the dark skinned, you know, she's not dark skinned, so therefore she must be pretty. And it was like, again, when you, you know, you saw black is king, brown skin girl yes. is literally all about that is, is Colorism. you are beautiful. Just yes. so you don't need to be mixed yeah. in order to be seen as beautiful. And, and, and that goes again into this idea, like privilege, we only hear white privilege. We only think about white privilege, but there's, mm-hmm. there's cisgender privilege. There's, uh, uh, if there's you so have the ability to, of, your, of your legs, you have privilege yeah, over someone who able body not. privilege. Yeah. There's, every, every, and that's the thing is that everybody has some it, form of privilege. Everyone. Right. But you everyone, just, but, but there's, there's a lack of awareness of it. And, uh, in, uh, so you want to talk about race by, oh, I, I I, I know I'll, I'll butcher her name, uh, but amazing author. She talks about how, like you say, I have, um, I have, I'm whitish. I forget her exact words, and I and I I can't quote her, but she's not she's not dark black, and that's a privilege, like mm-hmm. you're saying. Yes. And and we don't think about that. Like in your background, you're from Haiti, which borders the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican Republic, at, at least historically, they had whiter skin, right? And so they looked at Haiti as inferior. That's right. And there was that big thing where they would essentially deport Dominicans who were essentially, there was like a few years ago, that as Dominicans who were uh, pretty much lived in, in, in uh, Dominican Republic their entire lives, but they, they were extremely dark skinned. Keep in mind, 
uh, didn't speak a, a, a lick of Haitian Creole or French, which are the two oh, official languages yeah. of Haiti. And then they would just get sent back because it's the, that's the thing is that, and that's, there's a whole other discussion of Afro-Latinos, Latinos of African descent, and they don't see themselves as black because that is, no, no, you can't, we don't want to be seen as that. But it's like, you know, people who are darker skinned than me saying, oh, I'm not black. And I'm like, you, you are. But yeah. again, you've been programmed to see black as this inferiority, this lesser than thing. And it just, it permeates every sort of black nation, nations in Africa, West Indian nations, specifically Jamaica, who have invested so much money in skin bleaching. So literally removing, stripping your skin of its melanin and by extension. So what they do is this process where they put these creams on their uh, like, creams that a dermatologist would only recommend for a short period of time to remove discoloration, but they go with prolonged uses and they literally put it across their bodies. And then they put it in a, in a process where they saran wrap their bodies so that the heat will make you sweat more, which will essentially strip the layers of your epidermis off to make, to become lighter. Now, what you're doing at the same time is making yourself more, prone to getting skin cancer because the layer of your skin that withstand, you from it. yeah that's the th things that we have naturally do you know that i can't remember the last time i put on sunscreen <laughs> like it's things that <laughs> we yeah, have the things that we have the things that we have naturally we've been conditioned to believe are a curse the darkness of our skin the fullness of our lips the fullness of the hips the the the, the texture of our hair these are all things that white people and non-black people will pay thousands of dollars annually to get. Mm. And I'm just like, like even like, you know, the, the, the restaurant that I work at, I ended up finding out that half of the waitresses get lip injections. And I'm like, oh, sorry, can't relate. <laughs> like I was just like, <laughs> things that they're spending hundreds of dollars per session. And I have naturally, but the world would have me believe that what I have naturally is, is ugly. That is so- You can't make this up. Yeah. Well, Any, yeah. You, okay, so um, this might sound a little crazy, but like growing up, what I love so much was so influenced by, by black, right? Yeah. Think about like, to me, when I think of, uh, who, okay, so there's Dave Chappelle. Is it, is it, is it, is it Eddie, is it Paul Mooney? Paul Mooney is one of the greats. Godfather I comedy. Love that guy. Yeah. And he's talking about uh, uh, Ask a Black Guy. Uh, yeah. And, and it was awesome, right? And, and you could see these people, they're like these white people, they're like, so, uh, like, they're just so uncomfortable in their questions. And his answers are amazing. And yeah. he says something along the lines of, uh, Black is, is, is cool, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, growing up, I'm like, yeah, man, Black is like, you know, I, I think about white people and I use, I use the term undercover brother and there's this character in there that I, I identify with. He's this white guy, right? And he works yeah. for the agency and he's like very timid and like, oh, guys. Yeah. but then he's like, guys, I watch Roots and I just got to <laughs> say, I'm so sorry. And he becomes like this, you know, this ally and he, anyways, yeah. where am I going with this? Uh, but, but it's this idea of like, black is cool. But for whatever reason in our society, in the news, it's like black is, is dangerous or something. Well, it's, again, if we're talking about Paul Mooney, it's another thing that he says, which um, 
you know, and to, I'm going to shock your white listeners ears for a minute. Um, but he said, yeah, but he says, everybody wants to be a nigger, but nobody wants to be a nigger, which is essentially these signs that we see now, which is love black people. Like you love mm. black culture because, and that's another thing about appropriating is that you're taking all of these things from black culture and benefiting. But then when it actually comes time to sticking up for the people who you've taken from, you're silent. And that's the thing you, you want so bad because to be black, like you said, it's this cool aesthetic. It's just cool to be black because just what we do just naturally just comes off across as effortless and just is, is in terms of cool culture, black culture is the dominating one. But it's this thing as, as to now like people who want to, you know, talk with, a, and I hate this term, like a black scent, but who want to, you know, come, have the down lingo when I'm talking right. like this, dressing like this. But then, you know, as soon as you want to be pulled over by a cop, the whiteness comes back really quick. And it's the, yeah, you know, you're able to take it off. And that's the thing is that what is so frustrating for black people is that you are able to sort of dip in and out at your leisure. I can't remove my skin color. But, but to me, here, here's my guess is that that's, that's to protect themselves. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I've, I've driven home. Uh, and I'm the only white guy in the car and we got pulled over and the glasses go on, the hoodie gets zipped up and the demeanor changes because when I get pulled over by the cops, it's a very different interaction. And that's to not the threat of death that's there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, Oh, I might not make it home. Yeah. Well, which is very, maybe not as I'm just thinking that maybe in Canada there, there could be, cause our policing from what I understand is vastly different than what's going on in the United States. I mean, the whole Jacob Blake thing, like you can't explain that, man. You can't explain that. No. And I mean, it's, and it's just one thing after the other. And it's just, it's just like, and it's just, people now see it in different forms. So they saw it with Ahmaud Arbery, who was a modern day lynching. You literally see a video of him being chased and cornered like an animal and being executed. You, you hear the story of Breonna Taylor who was murdered in her sleep. You then see, and his name escapes me, uh, the guy with the central park, Karen, who you literally see the video alter interaction. Oh, as he's running away, as he's running away. No, um, no, the central park one where she essentially has her dog and she's like, he literally asks her to, you know, please le- leash up your dog. And then while he's videoing her, she's like, I'm going to call the police and tell them that a black man is, is, you know, threatening me. And she's like, she turns on sort of like, if you've read, you know, white fragility, the white woman tears. Yes. Because yeah, 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 yeah. white women yeah. know how to weaponize their yeah. tears. That's what led to the death of Emmett Till back in the day, um, which, you know, led to the civil rights movement. But it's just, you just, you see these things repeatedly happening. And for me, it is, I still don't get how there are so many white people. And for that matter too, there are black people, which in our community we would call coons. So basically people who, uh, uh, I'll educate a little bit, but like coons and you know what we call tap dancers. Um, mm. Especially if you've seen Django, think of Steven from Django. People who will do anything to protect white people, but when it comes to, to their own people, will make every excuse as to why it was okay that what happened to George Floyd and Jacob Blake made sense. 
and why it was their fault. Another term that I've heard is, uh, you know, and I don't think white people should use this term, but is an Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's a, so Coon and Uncle Tom essentially now are synonymous with each other, but they used to be different things. So an Uncle Tom essentially now, uh, or, or what it still is, is, yeah, it was essentially Django, for, or Stephen from Django. Yeah. And a Coon used to mean um, just a Black person who would reinforce all of the negative stereotypes of Black people willingly yeah. but now coon essentially means what uncle tom means but um yeah you'll have these people and sort of what, what's so comical to me is that you'll have a lot of white people who would want to still deny that privilege exists and they'll use these black people um like candace owens like um uh diamond and silk like um I forget those conservative twins' names, but they'll essentially use black people who are basically yeah. saying that what happened to George Floyd is justifiable, what happened to Jacob Blake is justifiable, and they'll sort of repost that and go, "Well, see, this black person says it, 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 it it's their fault, so it must be true." Yeah, because they're and speaking they for every black person, obviously, right? Exactly. And meanwhile, they're bypassing all of the these other black people who are saying, "No, no, that's not okay." but they're going to the one black person that is essentially, you know, confirming their bias. So, yeah. And, and, and that is, that's the other thing too, is um, something happens. Like if, if a white guy did something crazy, right? Mm-hmm. No one's going to come up to me and be like, Hey man, what are your thoughts about that white person that shot up all those people? Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what was going on in that person's head, but you have Black Lives Matter and suddenly every white person is asking every, you know, of the two black people that they know, like, hey, what do you know about this? And it's like, yeah, I don't think that they're the ambassador of their race. Well, that's the thing is that black people are not a monolithic thing. And I mean, since you saw the shipment, um, you know, there's. And that was the whole sort of first part is the, the, the sort of the, the stereotypes of black people that were all the same way. You're, but you're going to, you're going to have different opinions um, on, on, on things, but it's, it's easy to be able to tell again, the performative, like Candace Owens, essentially her opinion is bought and paid for. It's easy to tell that her opinion has been bought for and she's, you know, cause a conservative, she's endorsed. She's endorsed. A far right black person is lucrative now because, because it would not make sense for black people to be against their own best interest. It's now you, you'll have people like at Fox News that are like, if we can get the token black person on our network to basically confirm that, you know, this, you know, this narrative that, you know, that black people are inherently violent and that these people deserve to die and that the police force is beyond, you know, uh, correction, all of these things, it becomes very lucrative when you are one of the few Mm -hmm. people that let's get that sound clip. Let's get that sound clip. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And memeify the, you know, Oh yeah. absolutely. And then people see that and they're like, people, this is what I mean, man. In Western, in North America, we are weak. We are sheep. Mm -hmm right? Mm -hmm. And we hear what we want to hear, right? And when things challenge us, like, for example, I won't mention who, 
but there apparently there's this white kid who got killed by a black guy and he was mm-hmm. five years old and they're mm-hmm. they're saying like say his name and i say i say to my partner i'm like because this is a family member i'm like you know should i say to this person you should probably say emmett till's name you should say you know all these names that come first and then we'll say that kid's name right well yeah like, i mean let's and that's the thing i think that people think that the people who say black lives matter which is such a simple statement that somehow gets all this pushback but people (laughs) think that we somehow condone when a white person gets killed or that you know and at the end of the day if you want to condemn people because the media controls essentially a lot of the intake of what you see so fair point if the media wants to focus now on the black lives that they never did before um but at the end of the day the reason why these stories are not as amplified is because there's not a racial element. Usually what will happen if you actually do the research of these stories is that this was a very unstable, disgruntled, mentally ill black person who ended up doing this heinous thing who should be, by the way, condemned and and, and appropriately punished. But there's not a racial element that he did this because this was a white person. Exactly. When you look at the stories of the Ahmaud Arbery's and, 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 and when you compare literally the same situation where you have a white person and because their favorite thing to say is, well, you should have just complied. When you see the same video of a white person literally approaching a cop with a weapon and aggressively going, like aggressively going to them, going to their car, opening the door and they're, they're left alone. They're still alive. A black person is automatically seen as inherently violent and that, you know, even if you want to go to cases like Philando Castile, who was in his car and said, officer, I'm going to reach for my glove compartment. Please be aware I am a registered carrier. There is a gun in the glove compartment, but in order to get my license, I have to, like this entire script opens the glove compartment, gets shot and, 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 and dies. Was that the one so in front of his like, wife and kid? Yes. So she's filming the whole thing. And you literally hear him say, I'm reaching for it. There is going to be a gun in there. I'm registered, but I have to, if you want me to get, if you want me to see my license, I have to open it. Opens it, gets shot. So it's just like, and, and that's the thing is that people will do all of these mental gymnastics to basically not admit that these biases exist, that this, discrimination against black people exists, that this view of black people exists, because if you were to admit it, and this is what I've realized, Mm. if white people were to admit on a whole that this system exists, you would then have to realize that you are complicit in this system and you benefit from this system. Now, again, as you've stated before, we all have forms of privilege that we benefit from. Once you know that, it's about what you do with that. So if a person who is able-bodied knows that I have access to certain places that a person who is not has, you can then be, be a better person and help the person who is not as able-bodied as you make it through the world a little bit easier, being a human being. But from, even from white fragility, it's this idea that mm-hmm. this guilt, like, oh my God, I benefit from this system. No, that must mean I'm a horrible person. It's like, no, it doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It just means There was a system set in place before you got here and you must be aware of it so that you can challenge it and help people who do not benefit from it as you do. That's literally all it is here. And, and, and 
I'm privileged because I'm able, like, I'm like a spy. I'm able to hear all the kinds of crazy shit that other white people say and think. Right. And there's this, and, and this is not my, uh, my title, but it's this fear of a black planet. Mm. And that's from the, uh, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. It sounds like we're so tough on immigration because mm -hmm. we're afraid that white people, you know, are going to get, we're going to be outnumbered. You're essentially afraid of, of your own karma and what is exactly yes yeah you are afraid that black people and people who are minority will do to you what you have done to them and it's just like black people are and it's been said so many times it's just like black people you're lucky that black people are only looking for equality and not revenge <laughs> so and that's yeah. the thing is that we're just looking to be treated and to go through life without our skin color being the determining factor of how you treat us. Yeah. That's literally yeah. all it is. Um, and and, and it's, 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 it's such a simple concept, but it's met with so much resistance. And even mm -hmm. when you see things like, you know, experiments like the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment, like with Jane Elliott, and it's just... I, I'm, I'm not it, familiar with that one, yeah. I'll send you... It's, a, it's a, an incredibly profound video of a... Uh, She's a, she's a white woman, but she's a, uh, she's, she used to be a school teacher. And she essentially did this experiment where she ostracized people based on the color of their eyes. So she ostracized uh, blue-eyed people who are, would be traditionally white. Mm -hmm. And then the brown-eyed people, she treated like she gave extra privileges to, but in, the, in, the, in, the, in an experiment in a classroom. And it's so funny how you see the blue-eyed people, the white people, act like this is the most horrific thing. How dare you treat me this way? And she was just like, do you not see the parallel? Do you not see that, you know, how you treat people is how I'm treating you? And it's just this amazingly profound experiment that still people have circulated to this day. But um, yeah, I just, I just wish it wasn't saying Black Lives Matter was not as controversial as it is because matter is the starting point. It is mm. such a base level statement and I, I sometimes i'm like do are white people hearing a silent only at the end of black lives matter are they hearing a silent more at the end of black lives right matter right we're not hearing because it's it's not saying more or only it's literally saying they matter okay. <laughs> that's it i got i gotta tell you this man i gotta t this is crazy so at least i think this is crazy so a friend of mine he had this you know this meme this picture and it says so again, I'm paraphrasing and it says like, why do people freak out when they hear black lives matter? It's, it's like when they hear save the whales, do they think it says, you know, kill all the fish? Does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm kind of saying. So oh, my well, response, absolutely. my response was, well, that's probably because they're weak ass white people. That's what I said. And Facebook tagged it, took it down in like, 30 seconds and they said this is hate speech in 30 Lord. seconds i'm a white person i saved the picture i gotta send it to you but i couldn't Please. believe it and all i said was that's probably because there's some weak ass white people which yeah is true accurate statement and it's just it's as it's as ludicrous as thinking about going to a a rally for prostate cancer and then going there <laughs> and being like well what about aids like 
It's like, yes, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's as valid of a thing, but we're talking about prostate cancer right now. Because, like, it just, it boggles my mind that you can't say it without people going, oh, this is, this, what an awful thing. This is a racist thing to say. Mm. How? Please explain to me how saying a black life matters, not more, not only, but it matters. Explain to me how that is racist. Because what you just said is they think that there's this hidden insert extra paragraph, right? Yeah. Black lives matter uh, more than white people. Right. That's what they think that they're hearing. Right. Exactly. Which again, I think stems from, you know, being afraid of your own karma. And it's another saying of like, you know, equality can feel a lot like oppression to those who are only used to privilege. Whoa. So if you think, if you imagine if you are the, do you have siblings? You have yeah. a brother, right? You said? Yes. Yeah. Just one brother or is that you have more? Uh, I got a crazy family but uh okay i got a brother no i'm the youngest you're the youngest i'm the youngest so in in this scenario imagine if you're the the eldest of 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 your 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 siblings before Mm -hmm. he or she had any siblings they're accustomed to getting everything right and then when the child comes and it's like your parents have that conversation because i'm the eldest of my siblings has that conversation with there's a baby coming and you know it's going to look a little bit different you got to share this this and this and that it's going to feel odd at first like why do i i've been here why do i have to share and it's just like no it just means everybody needs to partake in order to be happy in life you all need to be able to share amongst each other but if you're only accustomed to only getting your way because white people are accustomed to telling they're not accustomed to listening and they're accustomed to having everything in their world is white people have access to everything. So when you tell them that, you know, oh, well, you can't say the N word. Why? Why can't I? Well, because of this. Well, no, that's not right. I should be able to. And they're just accustomed to being having access to all systems because historically, and it's the time, you know, the, 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 the time machine sort of um, analogy of white people could go to any time in history and be comfortable. Black people have a very finite period of time that we could go back to and be okay. Like past the eighties, it's not really anything for us. White people could go to medieval times and be fine. White people could go to, you know, any time in history and you would be welcomed with open arms. Black people have like about a 20 year period where it's okay for us. If that. The other thing too is that, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but white and black is like, you're taking, you know, hundreds of, we talk about First Nations here, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. the Coast Salish, there's there's hundreds of nations that were just taken away, right? But completely Mm -hmm. sovereign, different nations. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about white and we talk about black, we are taking hundreds of nations and throwing them together, right? Going back to what uh, Big Joe, who's Captain Zimbabwe, this is his nickname that he likes, talking about yeah. Joe and how he said, you know, there's these, uh, the, the Western, Southwestern African women, and then there's the Sudanese African women, yeah. how they're different. And in yeah. Europe, the same thing was like the French and the English were killing each other for mm-hmm. almost a millennium. Mm-hmm. But, but this idea of throwing them together and it's like, it's these two camps, mm-hmm. but really that's not what it is. 
Like, why, why has it happened that? Because it, going into the 20th century, if you were a Southern Italian immigrating here, mm-hmm. like you had a Southern Italian, you had a Northern Italian, the Southern mm-hmm. one was deemed racially inferior, mm-hmm. right? Because that was a pseudoscience. So mm-hmm. why has it become that it's this white camp and this black camp when really... I think because just that's the that's the sort of evolution of the world and sort of what colonization has done. Because what right. colonization did was it took people who did not look white, let's say, who did not were not of fairer skin, who were not of European descent, and it completely erased their history and their humanity. Which, if you think about it, seems like okay, like an, a completely impossible thing, but the brutality of colonization and slavery, you literally took a person who had an entire life, who had an entire history, who had a different religion, who had a different language, who had a different name, and you took all of that away and you put your belief system onto them while simultaneously saying, the way you look is not okay. The way you look means that you are inferior. The way you look means that you are going to be treated differently. And so that's what colonization did because Europe colonized the majority of yes. the world. That's just the way it is. Um, and that's, and it's, it, it, that's essentially what it did. And the, and the, the remnants of that, because that's, what, that's another thing that I love it when you know, white people say is that, well, it was you know, 400 years ago, get over it. And it's like, no, uh, slavery was not 400 years ago. Okay. The duration of slavery and Jim Crow laws and everything like that is 400 years. But please understand that 150 years ago, you did have slavery, that there are people within their lifetime, my grandmother, who is still, you know, alive, who just celebrated her 84th birthday, who remember what Canada and segregation in schools looked like. Because Canada had segregations in school as well, just FYI. I think the last one, the last uh, school to be desegregated was in 1986 in Canada. Like whites and blacks? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's cool. That's cool. That we used to have segregation here. We used to have slavery here. And I believe it was in Nova Scotia, 1986 was the last segregated school. 1986. That is nuts. But but that's the thing is that we have to, um, the reason why it's so two camps now is because that that's what colonization did that is specifically and if you want to look at places like um south africa that's their system of apartheid it literally said white people and then to break down black people because you know uh they had a system there where to be if you were black it meant both of your parents were black yeah and then you would be called colored if one of your parents was white and one was black which was by the way against the law um, like Trevor Noah actually explains in his book that he is, his birth is against the law. Um, but that's what they would do. They had a system of white people and then to break down black people who were in the majority, they made it so that they would break down black people even further. So you had black, you had colored, and then we're going to break you down so that the colored people have more privileges than the black people. And then you sort of pit everybody against each other, but white people remain dominant at the top. So it's, it's through history, it's just what's been done historically so that people who are white always will benefit. 
now and people who look other don't so and uh what i was trying to say is so from 400 years ago until onwards once mm-hmm. that transatlantic slave route was established mm-hmm. it was like you know that's that's a legacy that we're still living under there's this book called barracoon have you ever read it no. it's a first-hand account and it, it tells it tells you of how like Slavery was abolished in, uh, let's say, 1867, but there was still an illegal slave trade going on. That's right. Right? And this guy, it it tells how he was taken and he was brought to uh, the United States. And it's like, it's just, it's harrowing because how many people passed away just coming here, right? Let alone Mm -hmm. when they landed here. Mm -hmm. But what I was kind of saying is 400 years, like before the Portuguese started this transatlantic slave route, Mm-hmm. Has black history always been um, like tarnished, like like a thousand years ago? Well, the the interesting thing is you that talked with, about the time uh, machine sort of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. the interesting like, and again, pe- there will be people who will say this if they you know they can comment on podcasts. But black people within Africa, there was slavery with amongst Africans. Yes. And during there was there were Africans who sold so, same with other white Africans, people, right? Yeah, exactly. So there were, um, but our history, African people's history is passed down orally versus written. So that's why it's harder to go back and get accurate accounts of what pre-slavery it was, because what slavery did is that it removed the entire, the the passing down Mm -hmm. of history. So it gets more muddled. There's all these different languages and they're all separated and all separated because right. you know africa is just so many different cultures on one continent um like northern wow. africa and western africa don't look at all the same um but uh, the thing is is that when uh, european history is passed down in a written way yeah so it's easier i have to keep never track of. wow yeah Jesus. so it's easier to keep track yeah. of but african elders um and, and and indigenous elders pass their history down orally so i can only trace back my history but so far um i i don't know where i came from before my ancestors you know were brought to haiti what is now known as haiti i don't know what tribe in africa you know they were from i don't know this and i'm sure through a lot of digging i could find out but when you erase an entire person's history through colonization you're going to have only the white version of what they saw you as. Oh, we brought right. them, they were savages. We cultured them. This is now their culture. We don't know what they knew before. And it's like, if you think about how profound that is, is that you took away a person's name, you took away a person's religion, you took away a person's culture, you took away a person's language, you took away a person's clothing, you took away a person's food. You took all of that away, what makes a person, and you replaced it with this standard that is your standard of how things should be. And it's just like, it's, it's just, and I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of my history where, you know, Haiti is the only country that was formed by a slave led rebellion. Yeah. It's the only country in the history of the world that was formed that way. Um, So, you know, I come from, and not to say that all of the other nations are not a, a strong people, but I come from a people that were just like, you know, this is enough. We're not going to allow you 
to massacre us any further. And furthermore, we're keeping this land that we have cultivated for you. This is ours now. The, the Haitian revolution is mm-hmm. like, I, I remember studying about that. And that was like the whole, all the, all the colonizers were like, you know, France and England. They were like, Oh shit. When that happened mm-hmm. in, I think it was 1785 or something. Well, the last, um, but oh, there's been, there's been more, of course. Yeah. 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 But the, 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 the date, the Haitian date of independence is going to be, uh, 1804. Right. So 18, uh, 1804 is when essentially we had our own sovereign land, but what's interesting, and this is what, you know, um, back when that bloated tangerine in the white house said that um, Haiti was a, you know, a shithole country. And what's always interesting to me is that people love to condemn Haiti. It is, listen, Haiti has its problems. It's had a lot of problems, but please understand what part you played in making it that way. What a lot of people don't understand about Haiti is it's like when they kicked France out, it's not like France was just like, all right, fair game, clean start. France demanded that Haiti pay $20 billion for their lost property. Property meaning. Yeah, because it was an investment. Haiti was an investment. Oh, yeah. Right? right? What what else is a colony? That's the thing. And a land that has been, and and that's the thing, is that there was a time when Haiti was one of the most profitable countries where it had all of the resources, certainly in the West Indies, most profitable. And it's just been a history of people taking from our land. It's been, you can't, you lit, we literally started in a deficit because in order to maintain our sovereignty and not have France come back with a hundred warships, we had to pay them $20 billion, which by the way, the Haitian government in 2006 said to France, we want that money back. And France was like, oh, fuck you. No, that's not <laughs> happening. So in 2006, wow. Yeah, Haiti was literally like, we would, you know, yeah. all of the money that we paid to you, we want it back. And France was like, no, that's not happening. So you, Haiti has literally never started off on equal footing. And it's always been us being taken advantage of. There was the illegal occupation in the 1900s um, uh, by the United States. We've had a slew of corrupt governments. And, you know, our, our island is usually the first stop um, for uh, natural disasters, it's earthquakes, yes. typhoons. So it's like Haiti has never really had its fair shot. And to even just think about it, a country saying you owe us for enslaving you. It yeah. is mind boggling, mind boggling. So. That, and there's, there's certainly a legacy of that. And, and they're talking about, in the States, there's this one guy talking about reparations for mm-hmm. uh, descendants of slaves in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I am just looking at the time here, and I love the shit, man. No, well, you know what, man? I love it, and I want to yeah. do it again. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, the shipment, it's kind of like three pieces, right? There's the yeah. opening sort of comedy. There's this, this dance in between, uh, and then there's this this story of this 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 innocent guy who wants to be a rapper because that's his passion. And then he gets so swept up in everything. That's sort of what I picked up. And then there's this last one and it's like a dinner party. And I assume it was with white people. And 
it's this white fragility abound and it's like, you know, why am I unhappy? And I loved it, man. It was great. So how can people, uh, how can people see that if they want to check it out? Uh, well, a couple things. So, um, we, so we did that in 2017. The footage yeah. that you saw was from 2017. We remounted it in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, so we redid it again because it was, they wanted, you know, to do it again. It was so popular when we did it and it changed the Vancouver theater scene when we did it. Um, wow. but yeah, um, I know that there have been small talks of possibly doing it a third time, but yeah, if people want to see it again. It would, it's just basically, um, contacting your, you know, local theaters and asking them if they would, if, you know, if they would put on, you know, something like the shipment. Um, but yeah, I, mem I mean, I remember when I did it, I first of all, never thought there, there would ever be in Vancouver a play with an all black cast. I didn't think that was possible. Uh, second of all, with that type of story, and then to get the response that we got, like we had sold out shows the first time we did it, like every night we had to add a show that got sold out as well. And then um, the second time we did it was actually very interesting because for the first time in my entire career as an actor, um, we had a person walk out of the show. It was an old white woman and it was literally not even two minutes into Omari's stand-up bit. And she just, she was like, what is this? Is this all it's going to be? And um, she said that. Oh yeah, yeah. Shouted it out in a theater. And then Omari's still in the role. He was like, yeah, bitch, this is what it's going to be. <laughs> and then so she's with a friend. <laughs> yeah, Omari just flawlessly did that. And, and then what ended up happening is she was with her friend, took her friend out of the theater, walked on stage where Omari was, and gave him the finger, like, right in his face. Tell me that was recorded. Uh, I don't think it was recorded, but there were Fuck. people who were still vividly remember that encounter and it was written about and highly publicized um but yeah i have, that was, I have a lot of respect that guy is i'm like dude this guy has balls and i love oh it. yeah Omari. i oh, love you don't I, say with I, Omari. oh man yeah yeah i, I yeah. would he ever be interested in something like this absolutely i was gonna say you should the person that you should talk to because omari is probably the most well-known activist in terms of of not only black issues, but issues, you know, affecting all minorities in Vancouver. He has a resume in terms of the stuff that he's done that is um, unparalleled. And um, he likes to pretend that he's not a big deal, but I always, um, he played the voice of Black Panther in the Marvel uh, animated series of Black Panther. Wow. So he's a big deal. Um, yeah. And, and here I am, I'm, here, here, like, let me just say this for my listeners. I, I am extremely privileged because, you know, thank you for, for trusting me and talking to me about this. And, uh, you know, I, I want to do right by this, you know, so. So the, 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 and I appreciate being uh, offered this platform and it's uh, it's nice to get to know each other better in this, uh, this type of context. And I hope we, uh, we keep in touch and, you know, when COVID permits, you know, it'd be nice to hang out every now and then. Yeah. Um, but, um, the one thing I want to ask you though, is so just to clarify the shipment. So the shipment is yeah, essentially bro broken down into three parts. There's the comedian bit, 
Then the second bit is a highly stylized, what we used to call minstrel shows. So minstrel shows oh. were essentially what, like blackface performers, exaggerated stereotypes of black people. And you'll notice within that section, when we speak, it's very robotic and not connected. You're almost like marionettes. Body. You're almost like marionettes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then the last part, did you know before the reveal that they were white? I was kind of like, I, I, I picked it up. I was like, okay. Just because your character's name was Omar. So that's why I was a little, I was like, okay. But it's very so how obvious. Did you, that, that's my question for everybody who knows the reveal before the reveal. How did you know they were white? Just in how they're talking and how they're like, they're so, ah, man, you know, I, I, I've been talking ill of my people a lot this podcast, but they're so two-faced. The thing to take from that, which I would challenge you on, is that if you got the reveal before the reveal, there's something in your brain that made it almost seem like this could not be a realistic situation for a Black person. Because we would always have talkbacks after the show with the audience. And a lot of times they'd be like, oh, I knew they were white. And I'd always go, how did you know? Mm. And he's like, oh, because, you know, they were, you know, talking, you know, super white. And I said, how, what do you mean? And I was like, do you realize that the voice of Omar is my voice? The voice of when Omari's character, um, Thomas, that is Omari's speaking voice. All of our voices in right. that scene at the end are our regular voices. So I was like, so what do you mean? Oh, well, you know, the whole dinner party setting. Black people have dinner parties. I've been to many a dinner party. So it's just like, like you keep pushing back and it's like the goal is to make people see their biases, but also realize that at the end, the last line that, you know, that, that is delivered, which was, um, I just don't think we'd be speaking this way if there were a black person in the room. And then Adrian goes, I guess it would depend what kind of black person it was. Right. It's supposed to make the audience go, oh, Right. shit like oh they were black this whole time they were white they were it's supposed to do that because you should be seeing us as because we're black right. it shouldn't be because we're speaking in full sentences we're at a dinner party we have issues where clearly all of the guests at the dinner party all have their own issues dealing with either mental health or self um uh self-confidence but these are all black issues it's not because it's in a nice dinner party setting that it then makes it white. I think for me, the biggest one was when the guy was like, I poisoned all your drinks. And it was like a look at me, look at me, which I don't know, man. I, I see that as very white. Okay. Well, yeah. it was written purposely for that reason to make yeah. it, to sort of make the audience not aware. Right. What the hell is happening? And then the last line, cause I've had, reactions very similar to yours where there are people who get the reveal before there are people who are just like oh they weren't black this whole time <laughs> and then there are people like my mom who is white who mm. at the end of the play did not understand she was like well they were white the whole time and i said well that's that's the big sort of reveal and then she's like why couldn't they have just been black and i said but that's the point they sh you should just be seeing them that way. Right. And she was you like, don't walk but in I did. room and say, I'm black and I'm white. And you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Is yeah. That but then my mom yeah. was like, but I did see them as black. And I was like, but that's the point. And she was like, but the point is lost on me because, and then I realized my mother has only ever been exposed to black people from not like what you see on TV, not 
ghetto, not mm-hmm. um, uneducated, um, you know, you know, whatever, whatever unfortunate circumstance. My mother only knows my right. father's side of black people, which was is this very, um, you know, middle to upper middle class professional Haitian people. That's all she knows. She essentially only knows the 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 Cosby Show version of black right. people. Right. That's all she knows. So she was just unfamiliar with this, and she was just like, I just saw them as black because that's all I've ever been exposed to. With your father yeah. was very educated, very well to do by black people. So that, and that's when I realized people will have different interpretations of it but i always for people who got the reveal before the reveal i always say to them process why you got the reveal before it was revealed because if it's like that woman who said oh well they were speaking very well okay i speak very well does that make me white oh it was at a dinner party i've been to many dinner parties oh it was um because of you know they were talking about their mental health issues black people have mental health issues so it's all of these things that you push back and that I hope in the future, people who saw the shipment will take away from is when you know better, you do better. So once you know something and you can't unsee it, I would hope that in future um, things, like if ever you were to have with um, Captain Zimbabwe or anything like that, where there was, an, there was a thing where somebody were to say, oh, you know, pretty for a, she was really pretty because she was mixed and, you know, oh, pretty for a dark skinned girl. I hope that there would, what my goal is, is that I hope right. that white people push back as equally as black people would and go, what do you mean? Yeah. Why couldn't she just be pretty because she was pretty? What does the complexion of her skin have to do with anything? And that is sort of the goal with the shipment as well as having people question their biases and be like, why do I feel that way? Very much like the book of white fragility. Why is my first assumption this? And to go further in and not have it mean as a white person, oh my God, it must mean I'm a horrible white person. Because that's just, unfortunately, the system that we are all grown up in is a very pro-white, heteronormative, Eurocentric view of things. It's just the the world we live in, you know? And and I love this idea of challenging it. And, you know, you certainly hit on that here. The shipment definitely hit on that here. Like when uh, Amar, I'm sorry, Amar is... He's doing the bit at the beginning. When Amar's doing the bit at the beginning, he wants you to feel uncomfortable if you're a white person. That's the goal, right? Yeah. And and that's what I loved about it. It's like when I watched Dave Chappelle and it's like, Mm -hmm. man, part of their, uh, uh, you know, their a tourism or whatever the term is, I'm not good with the stuff, but it's to feel uncomfortable because that's how you think. So Chris, you, can, you cannot think without being uncomfortable. Exactly. Because then it's not thinking. You're just it's making It's a confirmation bias. And brrr, right? So There you go. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thank um, you. Uh, yeah, dude. Keep up this the amazing fun. work that you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I loved it, man. And thank you yeah. for being candid with me. Uh, Absolutely. And making me think. So I'll be, I'll be sure to get this up. Uh, check out the shipment. Now you sent me the copy of the video. Is there a YouTube link for it? Um, so the company that put on the shipment Speakeasy Theater, I don't think is no any longer uh, in business. Okay. However, I have uh, the video. Okay. Um, so it, if yeah, if people were interested in wanting to see it, I would do um, essentially what I did with you. And I would I would give them the Dropbox link okay. and they can see it. Um, I'm hoping though that um, there's enough interest for a third 
uh, remount of the show at an even bigger theater and that people would be able to see it then just because, um, especially now, I think it's very important that we mm. just keep telling this story over and over and having people question what it is that they are seeing and what they believe. So, And I love that too. It's like we need to, we need to stop speaking and start listening. That's it. And just yeah. don't be afraid of being wrong. I know in this generation that people being right is the ultimate goal and I have to be right. Mm-hmm. And people argue now to respond. They don't argue to listen and under and understand. And if yeah. you just come with a little bit of humility and it's, it's hard sometimes, um, but just come with the, the, the knowledge of, I don't know everything. And I could actually learn something from this. And if I did, that's a good thing. If anytime you learn something is a good thing. So come in with that mentality and you will take it less as a attack on yourself and just more of, of this is an opportunity for me to grow. Well that's said, it. my friend. Well said. Well, thank All you right. very much. Thank you, Rob. All right. Once again, that was Chris Francisk. Um, thank you for your time to both him and to you, the listener. I hope you enjoyed it. One thing that I, the biggest takeaway for me is this idea of there's performative change and then there's practical change and it all kind of comes down to the intent. Are you doing what you're doing because you want to be seen or are you doing what you're doing because you want to see a change? And that's something that we can integrate in every aspect, every facet of our lives. So once again, thank you for listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Be sure to like, subscribe, share, all that fun stuff with your friends and family and have a wonderful day. Take care.